everyone it's such a privilege and an honor to be concluding this series on the attributes of God and today I'm going to be speaking to you on the subject of studying God and his attributes father we pray for revelation today we ask that you open our hearts that you give us understanding of who you are of your nature and your character and that Lord you help us and you inspire us and ignite and activate us into studying you more and more we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You know, this series has really been an invitation to seek God more diligently through studying his attributes. When we study his attributes, we're actually seeking him more diligently. And the Bible says that when we seek him with a diligent heart, we will find him. In the book of Psalms 34 verse 8, it says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And so it's really been an invitation to taste the goodness of God, to taste these wonderful attributes of our God. And you know what? We've only looked at seven attributes of God. I like calling them the big seven, but there are actually many more. And even the others are really, really important. So I encourage you to really dig deep by yourself or in groups to study this wonderful God who we've come to know. To truly know someone, it's so important that you're curious about them. Have you noticed that? To truly know someone, you need to be curious about them, not just the highlights of their lives, but actually the, the daily routine. You know, often when I'm mentoring people, I say to them, if you want to be effectively mentored, if there's someone you admire, someone you look up to, ask them about their daily routine. Don't just ask them about the peaks in their lives. And I believe that this journey that we are on of discovering God, his nature and his character, is going to involve really digging deep. And that takes time, doesn't it? Don't settle for the headlines when it comes to God, you know. And then when you see him as he is, as he's revealed himself to you, through his word, emulate that, emulate that, especially when we're talking about his moral attributes, those attributes that are communicable, right? Things like his love, his mercy. He says, love one another as I've loved you, right? Be merciful as God has been merciful toward you. You know, I remember dealing with the team and I asked them this question. I said, how many of you here know what excellence looks like? To what extent has this team been exposed to excellence? And I remember it was a big question for the leader of that team. He said, this is such a powerful question. We need to think about that. Have we been exposed to excellence? And you see, many believers are trying to live out the Christian life, but they haven't yet been exposed to a thorough, comprehensive study of God's nature and character. Let's think about it. In fact, for many believers today, they've been exposed more to the opposite. They've been exposed to authority figures that literally displayed the opposite of God's nature and character. So that's actually the thing that's dominant in their mindset. And that's what they're living out today. In Ephesians 3 verse 10, it says, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So God's desire is that his manifold wisdom is known and his wisdom comes from him, right? It's not from any other source. So there's the manifold 
nature of God. In other words, he's multifaceted. He's many-sided, all right? There's his grace. There's his truth. There's his dominion. There's his perfection. There's his holiness, right? And as we keep digging deeper, we realize that he's infinite, right? So we'll never come to an end of exploring him, of discovering who he really is. And that word manifold, it's the Greek word polypoikalos, okay? Multicolored, multicolored wisdom of God. The reality is that God has so many dimensions to him, but they're all together in one unit. This is important. And knowing a list of his attributes doesn't mean we know him, all right? But studying these this, uh, multicolored dimensions of God gives him more room to actually work in our hearts, to work in our lives by revealing his nature to us. You know, we've got to give him something to work with. Have you noticed that as you discover a certain attribute of God and you go deeper, he comes by his spirit and then he reveals even more to you? And I believe in many ways, God is a gentleman in that way. You know, a lot of things he tells us, he tells us in response to our searching, in response to our curiosity, in response to our asking him questions. You even see it in how Jesus would teach his disciples. A lot of his teaching came out of questions that they asked, you know, Rabbi, you know, how many times should I actually forgive someone? Seven times, is that okay? And then his teaching on forgiveness comes through. All right. Uh, you know, Rabbi, teach us to pray is, is, you know, the Lord's prayer comes through. So I want to encourage you. Keep seeking God. Keep being diligent in uh, seeking God. And it's amazing what ends up happening. I love what A.W. Tozer said in uh, the knowledge of the holy knowledge of the holy. He said, if an attribute is something true of God, it is also something that we can conceive as being true of him. God being infinite must possess attributes about which we can know. An attribute as we can know it is a mental concept, an intellectual response to God's self-revelation. It is an answer to a question, the reply God makes to our interrogation concerning himself. What is God like? What kind of God is he? How may, how may we expect him to act toward us and toward all created things? Such questions are not merely academic. They touch the far-in reaches of the human spirit. And their answers affect life and character and destiny. And I like that. You see, this is not just some intellectual exercise that we've been on. It actually affects life. It affects character and it affects destiny. I also want to exhort you in your study of God and his attributes that we are accountable for the light of revelation that we've been granted. So we are accountable for what we have learned in this series. I like what A.W. Pink said in The Attributes of God, a powerful book if you get a chance to read it. He said, to openly defy him who is clothed with omnipotence, who can rend us in pieces or cast us into hell any moment he pleases is the very height of insanity. A.W. Pink clearly had a revelation of the holiness of God and the wrath of God, which are attributes of him, right? They're part of his, his attributes. You see, after having studied the attributes of God, we are called to respond to the word beyond a mere intellectual exercise. I believe that it's time for man to come back to the place of admitting and yielding to the fact that he comes from God. 
We come from God and the manual for living life has been given to us by our creator. And that's the Bible. The starting point of this higher life actually begins in a true study of our creator. He is our father. We originate from him and he is where we come from. We come from him. You know, often an estranged father is sought after by his child who's experiencing some kind of identity crisis. You hear of those stories, right, where they're looking for their father. They want to know who their real father is or their biological father and so on. Okay, because he doesn't know where he comes from and he's, he's struggling with this thing. Right. In the same way, in order for mankind to actually grow and develop for us as human beings, a study of the one from whom we originate is necessary. We need to figure out who's this wonderful God that, we, that we've come to know. A.W. Tozer said, we can never know who or what we are till we know at least something of what God is. We can never know who or what we are till we at least, we know at least something of what God is. In an introduction to his sermon on immutability, uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, back in January 1855, stated this, and I'm going to read it. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, in them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and our, and that our eagle eye cannot see its height. We turn away with, that, with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass's colt. And with the solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. We shall be obliged to feel, great God, how infinite art thou what worthless worms are we but while the subject humbles the mind it also expands it he who often thinks of god will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe he may be a naturalist boasting of his ability to dissect a beetle anatomize a fly or arrange insects and animals in classes with well-nigh utterable names he may be a geologist able to discourse 
of the uh, Megatherium or the uh, Plesiosaurus uh, and all kinds of extinct animals. He may imagine that his science, whatever it is, ennobles and enlarges his mind. I dare say it does, but after all, the most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And whilst humbling and expanding, the subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a, a balsam for every soul. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity and you shall come forth from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. It is to that subject that I invite you this morning. Isn't that so powerful? Isn't that so powerful? And I, I can testify to this, that in studying this, in going deep into this series, I must say, you literally discover how great this wonderful God is and how little we know and how small we are. J.I. Packer in his classic book, Knowing God, builds from here saying, but wait a minute, says someone, tell me this. Is our journey really necessary? In Spurgeon's day, we know people found theology interesting, but I find it boring. Why need anyone take time off today for the kind of study you propose? Surely a lay person at any rate can get on without it. After all, this is the 20th century, not the 19th. A fair question, but there is, I think, a convincing answer to it. The questioner clearly assumes that a study of the nature and character of God will be impractical and irrelevant for life. In fact, however, it is the most practical project anyone can engage in. Knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. As it would be cruel uh, to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London, put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square and leave him as one who knew nothing of English or England to fend for himself. So we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place. And life in it is a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfolded as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. There are a number of reasons why it's important for us to study God's attributes. And I want to share with you today what some of these are. Because your perception of God will influence your morality. 
And I like what uh, J.I. Packer unpacked for us just now as I was reading it. Just that link between theology and our morality and our character. You see, your perception of God will influence your morality. Your perception of God will influence your faith. Your perception of God will influence your prayer life. Where you were struggling to forgive yourself, you can now do so because you have a revelation of God's mercies. Where you were striving to impress God and working for his approval, you now abide in his love because you have a revelation of the fact that he's a loving God. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Your perception of God influences a number of things. Firstly, it influences your morality. Your theology impacts your morality directly. God says we must be holy as he is holy. He commands us to love as he first loved us. We are called to show mercy to others in the same way that he has been merciful toward us. These are some of his moral attributes that he requires us to also manifest. People become that which they behold. If you believe God to be a tyrant, you may quite happily become one yourself. Secondly, I want to say your perception of God will influence your faith. If I believe that God is a good God and that he generously wants to bless his children, this will affect the boldness, this will affect the audacity with which I come to God in prayer. This will influence my prayer requests. If I know that God is omnipotent, I'm not limited in the requests that I make. Especially when I have a revelation that his power must be understood in the context of his love. So whatever thing he will manifest in his power, he's also expressing his love. God is one unit. Remember, it's one thing for someone to be loving. It's quite another thing for someone to be both all loving and all powerful. You see, God doesn't just love me. God doesn't just love you. He also has the power to fix that situation. So your perception of God will influence your level of faith. And thirdly, I want to highlight that your perception of God will influence your worship. I must say studying the holiness of God and in essence his otherness has had a great impact on how I draw near to him in worship. It influences my song selection of the songs I like to sing in worship. I know that in our church we're very big on singing uh, songs to God, about God, not just about the things he has done, right? Praising him, not meology. A lot of songs today just talk about me and who I've become and are very man-centered. But I'm telling you right now, when you study his otherness, when you study his holiness, the fear of the Lord comes into your life and it affects your worship. It affects how you draw near to him. It affects what you do in his presence. It impacts the fear of the Lord in my life. It impacts my responsiveness to his instructions. And next I want to say, your perception of God will influence your level of resilience. You know, resilience, when we speak of resilience, it's your ability to bounce back quickly. A lot of people think they're resilient, but they don't bounce back quickly. They take very long to bounce back. You see, knowing that God is merciful, that he's committed to loving me helps me to actually bounce back after I failed. Okay, knowing that God is immutable, the fact that He never changes, 
right, reminds me that he's not about to take back the words that he's already released over my life. Then I bounce back because his promise still stands, right? I begin to understand that his gifts and his callings are irrevocable. This helps me to keep believing in his promise despite the circumstances. So my perception of God influences and affects my level of resilience. So what are some guidelines in studying God's attributes? If you want to do a study of God and his attributes, what are some of the guidelines? And I want to leave you with these guidelines because I'm encouraging you today to go and study further. You know, we've, we, we haven't covered all his attributes. We haven't really spoken in depth about his eternality. We haven't spoken in depth about him being an infinite God. We haven't spoken in depth about some of these things. All right. Uh, the goodness of God, for example. Right. Uh, his dominion. We haven't fully spoken about that. His sovereignty. We haven't fully spoken about that. So you want to do your own studies on some of these things. But I want to give you some guidelines, things just to be aware of as you study his attributes on your own. The first thing is that God relates to us in an anthropomorphic manner. God relates to us in an anthropomorphic manner. What does that mean? Simply put, he uses language that gets down to our level, right? And so he dumbs things down so that we get it. Now, our challenge is that we then tend to uh, very often humanize him, don't we? We think he's like us because he's using our language. The reality is that I can't fully describe the Trinity using human language and human words. I can't fully describe God's holiness using English words. <coughs> so we will always be limited in the language we have to describe his divine nature. He's too big for human words. How do you describe an infinite God using English words? How do you adequately explain his eternality without dumbing it down to human language and analogies to make your point? Just think about that. Mark Jones um, stated it this way. Almost all that pertains to humans in the scriptures is also attributed to God. The Bible speaks of God's face in Exodus 33 verse 20. The Bible speaks of God's eyes and eyelids. In the book of Psalms 11 verse 4, his ear in Isaiah 59 verse 1, nostrils in Isaiah 65 5, his mouth Deuteronomy 8 3, his lips Isaiah 30 27, his tongue Isaiah 30 27, his finger Exodus 8 19, and many other body parts, all right? So the Bible is anthropomorphic through and through, God accommodates himself to us in scripture and sometimes appropriates to himself language that helps us to understand certain truths about him. So it's important to understand that. Secondly, we can categorize God's attributes in order to understand them better. This is important, right? And throughout this series, we've spoken about his communicable attributes and his non-communicable attributes. So for example, his communicable attributes tend to be his moral attributes, those ones that he also wants us to be like, where he says love, right? Because I am love and I am loving. Be like me. Be holy as I am holy, all right? Uh, be merciful as I have shown you mercy. But then you've got the non-communicable ones. For example, he's all-powerful. 
He's omnipotent, right? He's omnipresent. He didn't ever say to us, we must be everywhere at the same time. We can't. That's something that's limited to who he is. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. Those are the non-communicable attributes of God, right? And it's important to be able to do studies where we look at these things. And then there are his meta-attributes, his meta-attributes. These are those attributes that qualify the others. So, for example, the fact that God is infinite, it qualifies some of the other attributes. So when I study his holiness, I must understand that he's infinitely holy. When I understand the fact that he's loving, he's loving forever and he always has been. Right. So when I look at the God who's infinite, that's a meta attribute in a sense. When I look at the God uh, who is eternal, that's a meta attribute. He will always be however he is. He won't stop being that. He's not only going to be that for this year. Right. If we say God is a merciful God, he's not going to ever stop being merciful. All right. So that's important to understand. And um, I like how Mark Jones describes God's simple nature in this way. It says, God is free from all composition. He is not the sum of his parts. There is not one thing and another in God. Rather, whatever is in God, God is. He is absolute, which means that there's no distinctions within his being. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that powerful, right? So that's also a meta attribute. It's important to actually understand that when, when we talk about God's holiness, we can't talk about it apart from his mercy, all right? Because he's, he's all of those things all in one. He's not a sum of different parts. This is important to understand. I said to you that God is also infinite. This means that all his attributes come in infinite doses. The self-sufficiency or the aseity of God, right? It's also a meta attribute. Why? Well, if we say God is all-powerful, he's not getting his power from anywhere else. Everything that God is comes from himself, right? So it really helps us to really understand uh, who God is when we can categorize some of these attributes. The third thing I want to say as a guideline is that studying God requires time. I know we live in the age of instant everything, but I want to encourage you, take time to study him. You know, A.W. Tozer said, the man who truly, know, who would truly know God must give time to him. The man who would truly know God must give time to him. You know, a powerful exercise to conduct is actually to do a study of how God describes himself in the scriptures. Right. What does he say about himself? Just look at all the passages where he's talking about himself. What is he saying about himself? Right? Because this is how he's chosen to reveal himself to us. But I can tell you right now, it will take time. These type of studies that we've been doing and teaching on, they require time. But it's so worth it. It's so worth it. It's one thing to study what people say about God. It's another thing to study what God says about himself. The fourth guideline I want to give you and thing I want to state is that studying God must be done from a place of brokenness. You see, we'll never know God if we study him merely as an intellectual exercise. I like what A.W. Pink says in the attributes of God. God is only truly known in the soul as we yield ourselves to him, submit to his authority and regulate all the details of our lives by his holy precepts and commandments. 
The times when we truly have him reveal himself to us is when we're functioning in the fear of the Lord. Not when we're trying to dissect him like some science project. It's when we say, Lord, I want to obey you. Lord, I want to live a life that glorifies you. So reveal yourself to me. And he begins to show you certain scriptures that you had never seen before. Maybe he starts to show you certain scriptures that you knew of, but you had never interpreted that way before. The fifth guideline I want to highlight is that the attributes of God work in harmony with each other. And I've touched on this a bit. In other words, they must be understood with the others in mind. You see, it can be dangerous to study his holiness without exploring his love. And you see, there's some cults that start or people who go into deception simply because of this. Oh, God is this. And that's all they focus on. No. It can be lethal to try to understand his mercy outside the context of his wrath. You see, he's merciful in the context of the high standards that he's already set because some of his other attributes are his perfection, his justice, and his holiness. And we can't study mercy outside of that context. We can't pick God apart and say, I'm just interested in this aspect of him and not the others. You see, God does not sacrifice his justice in order to demonstrate his love. And we see this on the cross, don't we? The cross is an act of love from the living God, but it's also an act of justice against sin. His attributes, therefore, work in harmony with each other. You know, if you look at some of these scriptures that I want to share with you, you actually see that what seems ambiguous or paradoxical can actually be embraced in God. And it seems paradoxical, but God embraces it. In Romans eleven twenty two, it says, Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Some translations say the kindness and severity of God. Huh? Do those two go hand in hand? Yes, they do when we're talking about God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And just looking at that, verse 22, is such a picture of God, isn't it, throughout scripture. I just love how it's just all-encompassed in one verse. He's stern. He cuts people off. But he's so kindness. But we need to con- he's so kind, but we need to continue in his kindness. In John chapter 1, verse 17, it says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Are you able to embrace both grace and truth? And you see, Jesus is a perfect picture of the Father, right? All the qualities of the Father we see manifest in his Son. And for me, this is so powerful that Jesus came with grace and truth. And that's why when we look in Scripture, we're told to be gracious, we're told to be merciful, but at the same time, we're told to speak the truth in love. Mark Jones explains this well by stating that there is technically no such thing as attributes, plural, but only God's simple, undivided essence. Why is this important? The simplicity of God helps us to understand that perfect consistency exists in God's attributes. God's attributes are consistent with each other. And this is so important. 
The sixth guideline I want to give us, and I'm going to conclude here, is that it's important to study and apply God's seemingly negative attributes. And I say seemingly because there's nothing negative about God. There's nothing bad about God. But those attributes that we think are unattractive, we need to study them. We can't be picky. And let's not be picky about which attributes we're going to study. Six bit um, sangwa said in a particular paper, uh, he states that while the Bible reveals various good attributes of God, some scholars have struggled to understand whether God can be defined by seemingly negative attributes such as anger or wrath and uh, jealousy that the Bible reveals about him. Now, I believe that his love includes a type of God kind of jealousy, as it were. You see, we struggle with the word jealous because we are imperfect beings, right? So we associate jealousy with sin. But if you're a perfect being, your interest in those who you love is so that they are pointed toward you and not toward anyone else. Because if you desire them to be looking elsewhere, that means you're desiring uh, lack of purity for them, imperfection for them. So you know that their safest space is with you. So there's a God kind of jealousy. It's not a sinful jealousy, all right? This is a holy jealousy that's coming from a perfect God who lovingly wants us as his own. His mercy can be only fully understood in the context of his wrath. So we need to understand his wrath. He's not just this God with low standards, basically saying, oh yeah, I'll, I'll let you off the hook for that. No, we know that he is so merciful because we are deserving of his wrath. So we must never downplay his kindness and his mercy, all right? And we must never downplay his wrath and his justice. He's very high in terms of his wrath and his justice and his holiness. He's also very high in terms of his mercy and his love. And just because he's loving toward us doesn't mean that he's compromising on his justice. I want to encourage you to do a deep dive into these attributes of God. Study the ones that we've covered in this series, but study further some of the other ones that I've spoken to you about. And I want to give you some recommended readings on the attributes of God. And just remember, you know what? As you study these things, view it in context, okay? You'll find some of these authors are very Calvinistic, for example. Some are very reformed in their theology, etc. So where you don't agree with certain things, have that maturity to say, oh, I love what I'm seeing here. But just learn to uh, chew the meat and spit out, spit out the bones if it's not aligned with what you believe, okay? I'm trusting that there'll be that maturity uh, in terms of whatever your stance may be. So... <clears throat> You've got The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. Powerful, powerful. You've got J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. Extremely powerful. You've got A.W. Pink's book uh, called The Attributes of God. Also really great. You've got uh, some of the Puritans who've written brilliant books. You've got Stephen uh, Shannock, for example, The Existence and Attributes of God. And that's a classic. And then you've also got Herman Bavinck, who's written The Doctrine of God. Also really powerful on some of the attributes beyond what we've covered in this series. Let me pray for you. 
Father, thank you so much for the series and the things that we have covered. Thank you for your goodness and the things that you have taught us. We commit ourselves to you, Lord, on this journey. Protect us from any form of deception, from any form of pride. We humble ourselves before you, Lord, and we say, come and teach us your ways as we study you. And we say, Lord, come and transform our worship. Transform the levels of fear of the Lord in our lives. Transform us, Lord, that we may emulate who you are. We commit ourselves to you in this journey. In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. God bless you.